Hello and welcome to the Hogan Lovell's Brexit podcast, a podcast where we look behind the headlines and explore what Brexit really means for businesses. I'm Andrew Eaton, an associate in our public law and policy team and member of the Hogan Lovell's Brexit Task Force. I'm joined today by Charles Brasted, head of our public law and policy team, as well as Robert Gardner and Pete Bowyer, both partners at DRD Partnership, a strategic communications consultancy with whom Hogan Lovells works closely on Brexit and other issues. We're here today to talk about how businesses should be engaging with government on issues like Brexit. Shall we start by each of you saying a bit about the work you do in this area? Charles? Thanks, Andrew. Um, Well, I am a lawyer by background, uh, but the essence of what we do in the public law and policy team is to help our clients to engage with policymakers in order to influence regulatory and policy outcomes. That includes very much, but is not limited to Brexit. Um, What we add uh, is uh, substance. Uh, What exactly is the message you want to get across? What is the solution you want governments to deliver? Uh, And advocacy strategy alongside people like Pete and Robert. And that's what we've been doing in the field of Brexit over the past getting on for four years now. Robert? Thank you very much, Andrew. My background is in the Cabinet Office in the British Civil Service and working inside a Middle East government um, on areas of machinery of government, uh, the formation of policy and strategic partnerships between government and the commercial and education sector. And at DRD Partnership, one of the areas where we uh, add a lot of value, I believe, for clients is a deep understanding of government policy and ways in which clients can engage with officials and indeed with elected representatives um, to provide ways in which those uh, policies can be taken forward. Um, And as I look forward to talking later on in this podcast, trying to find a win-win for both sides. Thanks, Robert. Pete? Well, my background is more on the political side. So I was a parliamentary aide in the 1990s uh, to the Labour Party when Tony Blair became leader, a party press officer, business relations officer, uh, and ultimately became an elected councillor. So I understand uh, positions from uh, elected representatives' point of view. Uh, I've been a political consultant there for the last 20 years or so. And my expertise in particular is bringing together campaigning work, which can bring together different parties, uh, lawyers, uh, PR people, government relations people, uh, to influence public policy in the sort of way that Charles was describing earlier. Uh, My first question is for you, Pete. Uh, Government relations is now a fact of life in modern business, with many firms having their own in-house public affairs teams. Is Brexit any different from business as usual? And if so, how? I think the key issue, and this is really stating the obvious, is just the size and scale of Brexit. The amount of parliamentary time uh, that uh, Brexit-related bills are taking up, there's very little um, uh, time for anything else in terms of legislation. Eight of the current bills in the Queen's speech, that's a third of all legislation, uh, is directly related to uh, Brexit bills. And that can seem overwhelming to business. It's an enormous, uh, enormous scale and effort uh, for business to get its voice heard in this, uh, uh, in this debate. So there are times in which it will be beneficial to business to work through trade bodies and other associations to be able to make its point. But at other times, it needs to act in its own specific interest where there are 
issues for it to play out. And how do you see the role of lawyers in uh, relation to Brexit, Charles? Well, um, I think to, to pick up on what Pete was saying, uh, it, it's not business as usual for the reasons Pete's given. Um, it's obviously also not business as usual for government. It's easy to see that. Um, one of the ways is scale, um, also complexity. Uh, but I think that what marks it out for me, and this is where lawyers really come in, is while Brexit is an intensely political issue, it is also intensely legal and big headline issues will and are already descending into very granular legal issues. And if you're going to have an effective strategy for getting the right policy outcome, you've got to grapple not just with the big headlines, uh, but actually with the detail. And you've got to grapple with that detail, that legal detail, in a way that delivers solutions that policymakers on both sides of the channel can buy into. And developing legal solutions is where we can add value to the policy and commercial debate and political debate that is happening at the same time. Robert, the civil service clearly don't see this as business as usual for them. How do you see their role in Brexit as opposed to regular uh, policy development? Well, can I just pick up on a point that Charles made, and that's, if I may, to add a third category, which is the constitutional notion of Brexit as well, that there was a referendum and um, government is committed to honouring the outcome of that, although, of course, key in that is, is the extent to which it is understood and, and then honoured. Um, but I think having invoked a, a referendum, um, it's a reminder of what referenda can produce, whether you like that or, or not. Um, in terms of the question, I think for me, the only point that I'd make to what Pete, Pete has already said and, and Charles has added to is this notion of unknown. Um, clearly, as legislation goes through Parliament in more normal times, um, what, what comes out the other end is, is consensus um, where, where that has been achieved. But I think with Brexit, um, neither party, whether that be the UK Parliament or indeed the European Union, knew what anything like the outcome was going to be. And I think that has um, made it very different from business as usual uh, and does require a much more bespoke approach. Would you say that businesses were too slow to engage with Brexit in the early stages? And uh, what trades are you observing in the levels of engagement since the referendum? I would say that politicians were probably too slow uh, in the early stages to decide and to understand what the referendum result meant. Firstly, because it was a shock. They weren't really expecting uh, uh, the outcome that, uh, uh, that was produced. And secondly, there was... No, there was little clarity in the referendum campaign uh, prior uh, uh, to the vote, uh, which marked out a path forward after uh, after the vote happened. So, politicians uh, were slow uh, slow to engage. Business hasn't been able to engage in a way it may have wanted to until there was some clarity by the government. Now that has come about since um, since the referendum. It's come about by major interventions by the Prime Minister uh, in, in terms of a speech in Florence, who won just recently at, uh, at the Mansion House, and also the government's uh, response uh, to the EU uh, in its proposals. So it's, it's provided some shape and some definition, which has enabled uh, business to have some traction with what uh, uh, Brexit means for it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I'd, I'd challenge the assumption in the question in a way uh, on two bases. One, one, um, you've got to remember that to engage effectively, you've got to analyze and understand first. Uh, you know, it, it's not it's not shoot first and judge second. So uh, businesses have had to spend a lot of time trying to understand what Brexit means for them. Uh, and that is very complex. Uh, and that work, I mean, our, our experience is that a lot of that work has been done in some industries by some businesses. Others are a lot further behind on that crucial analysis step. Uh, and until you've done that, it's difficult to engage effectively. Uh, but as Pete indicated, you've got to have content with which to engage. And we are now entering the period where that content is developing very, very quickly. It's developing on the EU side. It's developing in the sorts of speeches by Theresa May and Philip Hammond. Uh, and of course, it's starting to develop in the legislative process, which will, you know, has delivered, I think in the last couple of weeks, something like, you know, a dozen example SIs of the sort of thing that's going to come out to implement Brexit. There will be hundreds and thousands of those in the next nine months, each of which will contain important detail. So that's the engagement, part of the granular engagement that is having to start now, couldn't have been done before. Um, but I think it's also fair to say, if you look at what Theresa May and Philip Hammond have said recently, that picks up extremely heavily on work that industry, particularly uh, in my experience, the financial services sector, have done to put forward practical solutions. So there is real engagement that is delivering government policy. Andrew, the only point that I'd add to that is the notion of, you talked about um, business being slow to engage initially, but remember, soon after the referendum, there was the question of whether Brexit would in fact go ahead. Uh, and um, as we've heard, businesses weren't prepared for it. No one was. Um, but I think there's much greater certainty now that it will go ahead in some form. Um, and we are, of course, halfway through the withdrawal period. And therefore, um, withdrawal feels a lot more real now. And I think in addition to the opportunities to engage in a much more substantive way now being uh, present, uh, people are feeling the heat a lot more. So, so if I'm a business that wants to engage on Brexit, what makes for an effective government relations strategy? And who and how uh, should I be engaging? Well, for the brevity of the podcast, let me, let me make just one point on this, which having been on the government side of the table when organisations have come to um, to make representation um, in, in steady state. It is helpful to hear moans because you can understand where there are frustrations, um, but it is particularly helpful where organisations have um, thought about it in a constructive way as well and can suggest solutions. I would say in um, the current environment, as we've heard, it being a major part of government business, a major part of parliament's business um, and civil servants doing a good job to do as well as they can. Uh, nevertheless, um, those who come with practical solutions, having engaged in some of the heavy lifting initially, uh, will be received particularly well. And I would urge any organisation who's seeking to engage with government or more widely with parliament um, to think about some constructive ways forward rather than just um, moaning about the state of affairs. Just to pick up on that last point, which I think is really important uh, is about the wider parliamentary engagement. So it's critical that business engages with government, with officials, with departments, 
but I also think there's a role for Parliament itself uh, and uh, individual uh, MPs of all parties uh, uh, for business to be engaged with. You know, it, Brexit doesn't, as we know, delineate neatly on a party political issue. It's much more complicated than that, and there are divisions you know, between members uh, of all the major parties, uh, and it's important to have your voice heard by those different constituencies. And the same is true, actually, within government itself, of course. There are nuances and differences between the positions that different ministers uh, are taking up. You just have to look at, perhaps, uh, the approach of the Treasury and Philip Hammond, uh, yeah, with that of uh, you know, DXU or Department of International Trade. So there are nuances within government as well as within uh, within Parliament. Business needs to be aware of that. It needs to uh, be engaged at those different pressure points. I, th I think I'd uh, first to echo what Robert said. Our own direct experience is, if you go into government offering to do the heavy lifting, to do the thinking to give them the background material and to offer proposed solutions, that is well received. Uh, if you're going to do that, you need to be astute to the legal, the commercial, the policy and the political credibility of what you're putting forward. If you're missing any one of those pieces, uh, it's not going to get traction. Uh, so, so making sure you are covering all those bases in the team that is putting together your engagement content and strategy is incredibly important. The other thing I'd mention is this isn't a negotiation within the UK government, within the UK parliament, or within the UK. This is a negotiation of a settlement with the EU and each of its 27 members, at least. And any strategy that ignores 27 28ths or 28, 29ths of the relevant parties is not a good strategy. Can I just, I just add to that? I think that's a really valid point. I think there's been too much focus within the UK of looking just down, looking at this from one side, which is a UK point of view, and focusing on the UK point of view. I think we need much more of a 360 degree viewpoint, which looks at uh, and, and at times puts ourselves in the uh, in the shoes of where not just Brussels and uh, is coming from but the uh, key member states too so it is important to have this more holistic view rather than just seeing it as being a very London centric and London focused uh, debate and certainly from the point of view of Whitehall uh, we must remember that government is looking at its trade and political relationships outside of the European Union uh, and there's opportunity for businesses who have operations uh, outside of the European Union or indeed aspirations for business or partnerships outside of that uh, zone and to engage with government now as well as they're formulating policy in those particular parts of the world. So certainly in, in the work that we've done with clients we've seen a split uh, in, in the, the approaches and strategies taken by industry sectors. On the one hand uh, some sectors are very much sticking to their political ask uh, and making it clear to government that they want to stay, for example, in the single market and the customs union. Whereas on the other hand, there are other sectors of the economy that have taken the government's red lines as red and sought to develop uh, a way forward with those in mind. Uh, what are your thoughts on those approaches, Charles? I think that that is a question about how you articulate what you need out of this. 
are not about fundamentals. Uh, I, I don't think actually there is great value in setting up a binary choice between the customs unit and the single market on one hand and not those things on the other. And I think if you look at the UK's position and the EU's position as it has evolved, as they've both evolved in public over the course of the last year, you see the softening at the edges of all of those red lines quite a long way now. And I think what is important from my perspective for businesses, and I think this is about businesses and not about industry sectors as a whole, because there will be competitive differences, but for for any business, you should be clear about substantively what you need, not about terminology. Describe what you need in order to succeed. Don't worry so much about what label to give it, uh, because certainly from the perspective of those developing solutions, that's the political bit. And I certainly, uh, from our side, at the moment, think it is difficult to get the labelling right for all constituencies simultaneously. So focus on the content, is my view. So you'd see the, the debate that went on between A or the customs union is a bit of a sideshow when it comes to developing solutions for businesses. I think it's, I mean, Pete and, and Robert will uh, have a view on whether it's a sideshow politically. I'm sure it, it isn't. It's clearly a headline debate politically, as far as I can see. But in terms of what businesses need, should they focus on that one word, A or the? Uh, no, they should focus on what a genuinely frictionless or minimal friction system is, what it contains, what matters, and how that might be delivered. Pete? Just uh, echo, really, I guess, what, what Charles is saying. They're not mutually, approaches aren't mutually exclusive. We should focus on, uh, on solutions. Politically, it's an enormous issue, the, the, um, um, the debate on the customs union. There's going to be a vote in Parliament. Uh, the, bill, the trade bill is in limbo at the moment because the government is concerned that it may face defeat over um, an amendment that's been put down by some Conservative uh, rebels, which the Labour Party is going to now uh, now support and back. And that could uh, that that pressure could loosen the government's approach on a whole range of uh, of other issues. So um, I think politically it's a big issue in terms of uh, yeah, what it means to business. Charles is absolutely right to focus on the content of what you want to get out of this uh, as opposed, opposed to just the terminology. So, so coming back to this, uh, the approaches of, uh, of businesses, do you have any practical examples of how uh, you and your work have been helping businesses to articulate what they're trying to get out of Brexit? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. There are, of course, lots of examples that one can't talk about because of the nature of, of the work. Uh, but let me give one that is very much in the public domain, which is the work we've been doing with the City of London and the City UK in the form of the IRSG, developing very detailed proposals for the, the financial services aspects of a wide-ranging future relationship agreement 
that provides mutual market access based on mutual recognition, regulatory alignment, and the mechanisms and institutions needed to ensure a long-term sustainable relationship uh, on those bases. Uh, that is something that has been, in, in many ways, at least a year in, in, in gestation, uh, is very much in the public domain, is very practical in legal terms, uh, and very deliberately doesn't seek to engage with uh, binary choices, but to identify ways in which the mutual interests on both sides, which are well acknowledged if you go around Europe, talking to businesses, um, how those can be best delivered. Uh, and what we have seen with that is that model has been picked up as extremely helpful on both sides of the channel. Both sides very interested in understanding how it can work. Um, it's reflected in what Theresa May and Philip Hammond have said, both said recently. Uh, and I think very importantly, what it has achieved is a, 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 a focus for discussion that moves on from that binary debate. And it is now very much being seen as a potential model well beyond financial services. And that's the crucial part, because this can't be... The, the answer to Brexit, the agreement, the relationship, is not about one sector. Um, for, for lots of reasons, from cherry-picking to international law. Uh, so what you have to develop is a multi-sectoral solution that takes the best ideas from all of them and produces a coherent whole. Uh, and that's where we are with that project at the moment, uh, working very closely with government on both sides uh, and with industry sectors, uh, lots of them. Uh, to widen out the way in which that delivers a real solution. And that, that is the paradigm example of a detailed, solutions-focused way forward. So, Robert, if um, putting us in the shoes of uh, you know, government ministers and, and the civil servants sitting behind them, when a business comes to them with a solution, with a, with a worked-out model for how Brexit might work, how would that be received? And what kind of considerations go on, on that side? Well, I think it depends what the proposals are. Um, and as we've discussed earlier, having, um, having analysis and um, industry perspective uh, presented uh, and then uh, ways forward that shows an understanding of where government is coming from. And as Charles very neatly articulated, that also does include the political expediency of where government's coming from. Um, something that can give confidence to civil servants and indeed to ministers uh, will help enormously remember that there is expertise um, within the civil service um, but if you are uh, engaged in industry uh, day in day out on a particular sector then you, you may well have much more practical experience of the interaction with other parts of that sector and indeed with other sectors bringing that in a credible way to government is incredibly powerful. Um, but can I just make one other point here, Andrew, which is, um, in my experience, um, since since the referendum, quite a, quite a large number of organisations have relied on their trade bodies and industry representation to pick up the representation to government. And I think that's a very good 
use of, of those organisations. It's a good use of membership because they have good understanding, good contacts uh, within, within government and, and the civil service. But I think anyone should be very careful uh, where Brexit is concerned, whereas we've discussed there is so much complexity and so many different moving parts. You should be aware of um, throwing all of your eggs into one basket and allowing that organisation to carry your view because um, it may be diluted in the interests of the lowest common denominator across the sector. Um, and there will be some areas uh, within your sector where actually you're better off finding other partners from within your sector or quite possibly outside your sector to go into government and make your point without being weighed down or distracted by uh, other policy considerations that might be less important to you. Um, dilution is perhaps a little strong, but certainly distraction from the point of broader representation um, ha has been quite apparent with Brexit. And I would encourage organisations to try and be as bespoke as they can, although clearly the downside in that is you can lose weight uh, in your in your engagement and sometimes um, from a government point of view seeing that it represents a much broader number of, of constituents is important. So we've talked a lot about the negotiations and the, the big picture Brexit vision for the country. Uh, I just want to bring this back down to a, a big piece of legislation that also needs to go through to make Brexit a success which is the EU withdrawal bill. The government insists that the process of translating EU law to UK law is a purely mechanical process, but we as lawyers know that's unlikely to be the case. And deciding how our laws and regulations work uh, once the EU takes a step out uh, of the room and, and we're left to manage it for ourselves necessarily will involve some policy decisions. So businesses need to be active and aware of those potential changes and be prepared to engage. How, how would you propose that they, they go about doing that? Is it different to how they would usually monitor legislative, legislative change? Shall I start? Because I think it starts with a legal point. And look, mm -hmm. uh, the withdrawal bill is obviously of huge constitutional importance. And that is what is the centre of a lot of the debate at the moment. But it is... In some ways, it is just the, the, the tip of the iceberg of the legislative task of implementation of Brexit. Uh, there's the withdrawal bill. There are a number of other bills, so pieces of primary legislation sitting just, just alongside it, which are going to provide for substantive policy change in particular areas. And then there is, as I mentioned earlier on, um, the expectation of hundreds, probably thousands, of what are known as statutory instruments or secondary legislation that will come under it, all of which are necessary to implement specific aspects of the domestication of EU law. What that means is that a lot of change will be happening very quickly with necessarily very limited parliamentary scrutiny, probably no real public consultation, uh, and very limited time for anybody to look at it. Uh, that is where the devil will be. And as Andrew, you'll know, for us as lawyers who spend a lot of time doing judicial review as well as engaging with government, it's often in the very small things, often in the inadvertent effects, in the unintended consequences, that the commercial impact arises. And so my message would be, don't lose sight 
of the domestic detail by being distracted by the headline negotiations. From a, from a public relations, government relations perspective, how, how, how would it work for business monitoring this kind of change happening in the background? I think to pick up on Charles's point, um, the first thing is that um, with there being so much legislation there, primary and secondary, uh, it's really important as a, um, as a first step to understand what's going through Parliament and, uh, and when, to have very detailed monitoring intelligence systems set up to understand what the consequences could be of these individual pieces of regulation uh, and, and legislation that, that, are, that are going through, and then to have uh, you know, keep the focus on that level of detail, because it is that detail that could come back you know, to bite a business uh, if if it allows things to slip through which uh, which it hasn't seen because it's been overwhelmed or distracted. Uh, you know, uh, we'll talk about government being distracted by. Uh, uh, by elements of this business too can be distracted uh, by just the overwhelming nature of, of what's going on here. So focus on the detail, uh, monitor very closely what's going through and when, and then coming back to Charles's point earlier, I think it's about uh, having solutions and a solutions-based approach uh, uh, to uh, that level of engagement with government. Just one final comment from me on this question is, um, and Andrew, you touched on it in, in the question, is this notion of uh, machinery of government considerations for government. Um, there will be new agencies that are created as a result of Brexit. We've already seen a new department, a new member of cabinet created as a result of Brexit. Um, and I think as um, businesses and other organisations think about policy considerations, choosing their battles, finding their friends to go in and, and make the points that they want to be made. Um, they should also just step back and think at a slightly higher level of which government agencies might be created, which um, transactional policy areas will require much greater oversight by government, um, and think about how they can provide guidance to government where government may not have realised that there will be so many implications for the sector, uh, so that the right bodies are set up to oversee the post-Brexit environment. And that all sounds like quite a defensive exercise, but I was wondering with all this change happening, is there, are there opportunities out there for businesses to influence how the post-Brexit environment in the UK will look? Well, I've been to some Brexit events where the mood in the room has been that there will be no opportunity and there will be nothing uh, after we leave the European Union. Um, clearly, on this podcast, we can be much more balanced um, and regardless of how any of us would have wanted the referendum to go, I think it is important to recognise that there will be opportunity because it will be a new order and part of that opportunity will come from relationships with non-European countries and part of it will come from relationships with European countries that may not have been possible before Brexit. I think for organisations um, who are looking at business within the European Union, um, again, it comes back to understanding what the policy priorities are of those respective governments um, and seeing how within those economies opportunities can be realised that create a win-win because if you are delivering to government policies at the same time as delivering to your own um, financial return, then 
then that is likely to be a relationship that's going to be much more sustainable. Could I add to that a point about tactics, I think? Um, if you go to government now with really good proposals, the stated purpose of which is simply to maintain the status quo as far as possible, you're losing 50% of your audience straight away because that is not politically astute in the way it's presented. Uh, and therefore thinking very carefully about where there is opportunity to do things a little bit differently, or at least to le I think at this stage, it's more about ensuring there is a bit of flex in the system. One principle that I think has been accepted on both sides now is that any, any relationship that is built on a, a sort of set in aspic set of rules will break very quickly. It is too fragile. There needs to be room for both sides to make policy choices in future. And now is the time to identify those to government on this side where you might see that opportunity in future so that it is built into the relationship arrangements in a way that allows it to happen in due course. I think that's a crucially important point, even if your principal objective is maintaining your current levels of access, for example. It's also important to identify which departments of government are also looking at Brexit as more of an opportunity to do things a bit differently too. So it's, it's, it's trying to mirror some of that activity. So if you look, for instance, I would say DEFRA as an example, and what Michael Doe is doing there, he's got some very interesting ideas about uh, um, you know, post-Brexit future in terms of environment, agriculture, uh, and so on, which will create creates threats to some, certainly, but also there are great opportunities there uh, to, uh, to engage. So some departments of state seems to me are more uh, enthusiastic, should we say, about uh, the, the type of environment that could be created post-Brexit. Others themselves are being more defensive, in which it's more difficult to engage on a more proactive basis. It would be very interesting to do a, a survey of the departments who are headed by strong Brexiteers versus those who were headed by strong Remainers. I would just echo the points that have been made in response to this, and I think it comes back to doing your homework and making sure you understand um, where the policy priorities are and where the opportunities are, and that does require a deep analysis and making sure that your your point of view is not being diluted or distracted by a broader range of interests from those within your sector. I'll make one final point on this, which people might regard as a little cynical, uh, but it's one that I have made, we have made, uh, since pretty much the day of Brexit. Uh, if you are an international business looking at where to put new investment, uh, I would just say the UK needs some big wins on that front at the moment, and there may therefore be deals to be done in terms of what you get from them in support and policy uh, if you are willing to make that inward investment at this stage. That brings me nicely to my last question, which is what's the one thing that businesses can do to seek to maximise their influence during this time? I would say provide um, strong and constructive solutions that allow government to deliver what it needs to deliver 
that allows parliaments to deliver what it needs to deliver and that is of benefit to shareholders uh, or others who have an interest in your organisation. It's difficult to boil it down just to one, but um, I, uh, I would echo the solutions-focused um, uh, approach, which we talked about at some length during this session. Um, for myself, it would be this wider engagement, and uh, you know, Brexit is, is very complicated. It's complicated along over a number of different sectors, a number of different departments, uh, but also uh, it, uh, it cuts across traditional uh, political differences, and I think that business needs to take a broader uh, approach to its dealings uh, with the policy environment in the UK. Last word, Charles. Rather than trying to come up with another way of saying those, thing, uh, those things, let me try and summarise where we've got to on this. I think it comes down to finding solutions that are commercially, legally and politically credible and finding allies for whom those also work and develop, delivering those with your allies to government in a way that allows them to use it. Thanks everyone, that was a really instructive discussion. And that's it for this episode. For further help and guidance and to find out more about our latest thinking on legal issues surrounding Brexit, please visit our dedicated Brexit hub at hoganlovels.com forward slash Brexit. You can follow us on Twitter at HLBrexit or get in touch with us by contacting a member of our Brexit task force or emailing brexit at hoganlovels.com. And of course, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.